Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. Every once in a while, music enters a state of flux, where the direction of everything is, um, well, let's just say it's undefined. We see and hear change, but we're not quite sure what it all means just yet. Something is coming, but what? All bets are off. The rule book has been declared invalid, and everybody is off doing something. Let me give you an example. In mid to late 1950s Britain, popular music was evolving and mutating very quickly. In the midst of imported American rock and roll records, the skiffle craze, and various flavors of folk music, some young people rejected contemporary sounds in favor of something known as trad jazz. This was a revival of something close to Dixieland jazz from New Orleans, which emerged around the same time as World War I. That meant music made with trumpets. That meant music made with trumpets, the trombone, the clarinets, the banjo, upright bass, and drums. The new acts mined the more pure, more authentic sounds of the past, hoping to be, you know, inspired again. And for a while it worked. Trad jazz was a thing in the UK until sometime in the 1960s. Everything from pop songs to nursery rhymes were fair game for trad jazz arrangements. I'll give you another example, and it's tangentially related to British trad jazz. It also has its roots in Dixieland, but took a detour through the Caribbean before appearing in central Britain at the end of the 1970s. That was also a time when the direction of music seemed undefined. On the bright side, it also meant that nothing was off limits or out of bounds. It was the post-punk era. Popular music had been shaken by punk so much that people were more willing than ever to find new paths. This is part six of the post-punk explosion. It's the time of ska. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Those are the specials covering a song from 1949 written by Americans Carl Sigmund and Herb Madison at a time when trad jazz was happening in the U.S. It was recorded by Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians in 1950 and became such a big hit that it was covered by Bing Crosby and Doris Day. From there, the song made it to Jamaica, thanks to nighttime AM radio coming from New Orleans over shortwave and the jazz records that could be heard around the U.S. military bases. In 1963, it was covered by Prince Buster, one of the early practitioners of a local sound called ska. Fifteen years later, Jamaican immigrants were playing that song from their new homes in Britain, and those songs helped establish a new wave of ska, which included another cover by The Specials, which we just heard. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and on Chapter 6 of our look at the major sounds that came out of the post-punk era, we're going to look at ska, or more correctly, second-wave ska. And to understand how this modern iteration came to be, 
We have to cover quite a bit of history. First, though, a definition. Ska is a choppy, staccato form of music in 4-4 time, where the beat is emphasized on the second and fourth beats of each bar. The guitar will hit on the first, third, and occasionally on the fourth beat. Traditionally, ska also featured lots of brass instruments. The trombone is big, so is the saxophone, maybe the trumpet. The bass line is very important, too. Steady quarter notes along a scale or something similar. We call that a walking bass line. And the result is a very infectious sound that's really easy to dance to. And if we're really going to look at the history of ska from the beginning, we have to consider the Jamaican mining industry. Oh yeah, stick with me. In the 1940s, vast stores of a mineral called bauxite was discovered in the red soil of Jamaica. You process bauxite and you get aluminum. And you don't need me to tell you how important aluminum is. By 1952, multinational mining companies were digging up Jamaican bauxite and sending it overseas. Millions of tons of this stuff. And Jamaica quickly became the world's top source of bauxite. By the early 60s, tens of millions of dollars of foreign investment was flowing into Jamaica so that more and more bauxite could be dug out of the ground. This played a role in Jamaica's desire and ability to stop being a colony of Britain and a country all of their own. Selling land to bauxite miners proved to be very profitable, but as a result, more and more young people were moved out of the country, where the bauxite mines were set, and into the city. But because they were unskilled, the jobs they could get in the city weren't very good, and they settled in ghettos like Trenchtown and Kingston. Poverty equaled political unrest, and some of that unrest manifested itself in music, which coalesced around a sound called ska. Ska was a hybrid of American trad jazz sounds mixed with Caribbean rhythms like Calypso, which came out of Trinidad and Tobago, and descended from, believe it or not, a form of French music that was co-opted by African slaves working on the plantations. Mixed in was Mento music, a form of Jamaican folk music based on traditional sounds that came with the slaves from Africa. Both sounds date back hundreds of years. So we have Dixieland, jazz, blues, R&B, Calypso, and Mento. This musical stew became known as Shuffle and was often heard on Jamaican national radio throughout the late 1950s and into the early 1960s. This new sound proved to be pretty popular, especially with people, like soldiers, returning to the U.S. They wanted to take records home with them, so a number of entrepreneurial artists got into the business of recording, manufacturing, selling, and broadcasting Shuffle records. Another group of entrepreneurial types built portable sound systems for playing this music at high volumes on the street and at parties and festivals. This became a very competitive thing, and eventually a new group of alienated, unemployed, and impoverished music fans called Rude Boys emerged from the ghettos of Kingston, Ocho Rios, and Montego Bay. Guys who ran dances using their big sound systems often hired Rude Boy gangs to crash the event set up by their rivals. But back to broadcasters. This is where we meet Clemen Coxon Dodd. By the late 1950s, he was recording local proto-ska bands in his own recording studio. Some of those records went to the guys operating sound systems. The big change came in 1962, when one of these musicians slash entrepreneurs, a guy named Cecil Bustamante Campbell, changed the beat. Together with Jerry Ja, his guitarist, Cecil moved the beat emphasis from the one and the three to the two and the four. In other words, the offbeat was stressed. This change in syncopation was the spark, and ska was born. And it got help from an interesting political development. 
The appearance of ska coincided with Jamaica's political independence. Ska became the semi-official sound of this new world, this new future for Jamaica. Ska fans know Cecil Bustamante Campbell by his stage name, Prince Buster, and this was a huge hit for him in 1967. Where does the name Ska come from? It's a bit murky, but there are competing theories, most onomatopoeic. Some people believe that it was taken from the sound of a choppy guitar click on the guitar, like scat, 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 or when a guitar and a piano played together, like ska, ska. Or maybe it was a Jamaican musician named Cluett Johnson who liked to use a made-up word, skavuvi. It could have originated from a rhythm some called steya, steya, or maybe it was Byron Lee, the leader of a band called the Dragonairs, who used the word ska. Or maybe it was invented by Jamaica's most popular studio band of the 1960s. Don Drummond was a trombone player who liked to emphasize that instrument in his arrangements. He also gave the music a slightly darker feel. At first, he called his group the Satellites, but then that was changed, for some reason, to the Scatolites. The Scatolites were a big studio band, and they played on virtually every record made in Jamaica between 1963 and 1967. In the process, their choppy sound became hugely influential. They were the equivalent of the studio bands used by Motown and Stax Records in America. Unfortunately, Don Drummond never saw what became of his invention. In 1964, he murdered his girlfriend and died in an insane asylum in 1969. Some say it was natural causes. Others say he was murdered by gangsters seeking to avenge his girlfriend's death. Others still will say it was all a government plot to kill off the powerful and influential Jamaican music scene. So take your pick. Here's Don Drummond and the Scatolites from 1965. This is called Terra. Desmond Decker is another name to remember from the early days of ska. He used to work in a Jamaican welding shop alongside some kid from St. Anne's Parish named Bob Marley. Decker became Jamaica's top singer of the 1960s. And thanks to a label called Island Records, a company run by an Englishman named Chris Blackwell, who was in love with the music of the Caribbean, Decker scored Ska's first worldwide hit in 1969. Get up in the morning, sleeping for bread, sir, so that every mouth can be fed. Ska was the dominant music in Jamaica through the mid-1960s. It became the national dance, and skankin' swept the nation. It was easy, just bend your knees and run in place to the beat. Make fists, bend the elbows, and punch and step and punch and step. And things were great for a while. But as the number of rude boys in the ghettos increased, the music became slower and more menacing. If you're looking for an analogy, it assumed much the same form as gangster rap of the early 1990s. This slower version of ska became known as rocksteady and then reggae. Reggae overtook ska by the late 1960s, bringing the boom times for ska to an end. But ska was not dead. It was just about to move. Jamaica became an independent country on August 6, 1962. 
By the end of the 1960s, the cities were overflowing with people who had moved from the countryside after bauxite mining took over. These people had a choice, tough it out in Jamaica or immigrate. One choice was the UK. The country suffered a tremendous labor shortage following World War II, and in an attempt to attract workers to help rebuild the country, the British government extended an invitation to citizens of the former colonies and other members of the Commonwealth to move to the UK. This invitation first went out in 1948. Now, this sounded pretty good to a lot of Jamaicans, so they packed up and moved across the Atlantic to the UK, where they became part of the British working class. Naturally, they brought their culture with them, and that included ska. And that led to an inevitable mixing of cultures in cities like Brixton and Coventry. Now, let's talk about Coventry. This is an industrial city in central England that became home to many immigrants from Jamaica and their ska, which the locals started calling Bluebeat. Bluebeat existed alongside Northern Soul, R&B, Reggae, as well as some of the music from the youth movements, mods, rockers, and teddy boys. Of these, the mods were the most important. They were huge fans of R&B and Soul, and Bluebeat, ska, was co-opted into their universe. Then came punk rock. In the early days of punk, there were bands and fans, but no records. If you went to a club where punks hung out, there were no punk records to play, so the music played by the DJ was a mix of many things, including soul, R&B, reggae, and ska. And one of those DJs was Don Letts, later an associate of The Clash and a member of Big Audio Dynamite. Well, and let's go back to, what is it, would it be 76 or 77 when you were the DJ at the Roxy? It was 76 into 77. And there... you know, that's where I played, you know, just reggae, which a lot of people thought was a bit strange. But the punks really dug... What did they dig? They kind of dug the musical reportage quality of the songs. The fact that the songs were about something. You know, the Clash and the Pistols were singing, um, what was it, Anarchy in the UK. The Clash was singing London's Burning in Jamaica. We were chant- chanting down Babylon. You know, um, so they picked up on the musical reportage quality of the songs. The obvious anti-establishment stance. They loved the bass lines. And uh, they didn't mind the weed either, it has to be said. <laughs> they were like-minded spirits, you know, they were kind of rebels, certainly on the streets of London, that were thrown together as outsiders. So, what happened next? Hang tight. So let's review where we are. Ska develops over a couple of decades in Jamaica. Then there's an immigration boom that sees a lot of Jamaicans move to the UK to help out with the British post-war labor shortage. They became part of the British working class. That group of people included all these alienated white kids many of whom eventually got into the spirit of punk. As these punks rejected most of the music of the status quo, a good chunk grabbed onto the music of marginalized people, which included ska and reggae and dub of their immigrant neighbors. With no punk records yet, punk clubs gave a lot of time to spinning ska and reggae and dub records, along with soul and R&B. And that music became an influence on the budding punks. So, the new British punk sound and its do-it-yourself attitude mixed with ska and reggae, and was whipped into a hybrid by punk-friendly working-class British kids. Here's one of the best examples. Jerry Dammers lived in Coventry, one of those places with Jamaican immigrants. He was a huge fan of all this music. Plus, he was also very much into the freedom of expression that came with the punk movement of the 1970s. He was also the son of a minister, so this music was his way of rebelling against the way he was brought up and against the bleak working-class existence of Coventry. 
he formed a group that was a little more reggae and maybe a little more soulful than punk. And it came with a uniform, a look that was a cross between a West Indian rude boy, a British skinhead, and a British mod. This meant suits, pork pie hats, dark glasses and white shirts, and various checkerboard designs. Jerry was something of an artist. He designed a mascot for this music, and you've probably seen the cartoon figure dressed in this new style. That character even had a name, Walt Jabsko. His whole look was based on a photograph of Peter Tosh, a former member of Bob Marley's Whalers. His name was borrowed from Walt Disney and Jabsko from the maker of a bowling shirt in Jerry's closet. Jerry's band eventually became known as the Specials, and thanks to them, we can now talk of the second wave of ska. And it started with an actual sample from that old Prince Buster song that we heard earlier. The Specials, actually the Special AKA, which was their first name, and the song is Gangsters. This was the song that launched what's become known as Second Wave Ska, the first being back in the late 50s and throughout the 60s. In March 1979, the Specials borrowed 700 pounds from family and friends to form an independent record label that Jerry Dammers called Two-Tone, after the black and white suits worn by mods and skinheads in the 60s and after the peaceful, multiracial makeup of the band. Gangsters was the first two-tone single, and a fine example of cooperation and diversity. A big deal at the time, because there were plenty of racial tensions in the UK, and a lot of immigrant hate. This image sent a powerful anti-racist message. The specials only had enough money to record the A-side, so the B-side was offered to a friend named Noel Davis, who was another big ska fan. Noel had a tape of instrumentals he and his brother recorded in their living room a couple of years earlier, but he'd never done anything with it. When Jerry offered him the B-side of the special single, Noel was grateful. The track was called The Selector, and that also became the name of the band. That split single, featuring The Selector and The Specials, launched Second Wave Ska. It was faster and tighter than most traditional Ska. The guitar chords were more aggressive in a punky sort of way, and the horn section really stood out too. Established record labels started to take notice, and after considering several offers, Jerry struck a deal with Chrysalis. They would help with the marketing and the promotion and the distribution, while Jerry was assured complete creative control. Once that deal was struck, Two-Tone started signing other like-minded bands. One such group was from North London, who also blended punk and traditional Jamaican ska into what they called a nutty sound. They called themselves Madness, after an old Prince Buster song. And after staying with Two-Tone for a bit, they moved on to another label, and from there, they would go on to be one of the most successful British singles bands of the 1980s. This is Madness. The second wave of ska built fast. It was fun. It was infectious. It was easy to dance to. It was socially conscious. And it offered an antidote to the bleakness of Britain in the late 70s and early 1980s. Now, remember, this is a time of recession and high unemployment and endless strikes. 
Two-tone acts were easily the most visible of the ska bands, although there were plenty of others. The employees, the piranhas, the tigers, scosity rockers, and bad manners, led by the supersized Buster Blood Vessel, who dressed in what looked like wrestling gear. In 1980, they released this. Another major band of the era was The Beat. We in North America would eventually call them The English Beat because another band had beat them to the name on this side of the Atlantic. They came out of Birmingham, another mainly working-class city which had fallen in hard times in the late 70s. They had two frontmen, Dave Wakeling, who was white, and Ranking Roger, a black man who added some Caribbean swagger to everything. They also had a saxophonist named Saxa. He was from Jamaica and had actually played with Prince Buster's band with Desmond Decker. The Beat covered ska classics, a soul song or two, and wrote their own songs, like this. Like I said earlier, there was an inextricable link between ska and race. While the Racist National Front organization was attempting to recruit alienated young people, Ska groups, with their messages of racial harmony, were trying to hold it all together. But it was a losing battle. The scene grew too fast. The talent pool became diluted, and the music started to become stale. The British music press, which had gone all in on Ska, soon tired of it, and not only started to move on, but also began to tear the scene down because, uh, well, that's what the British music press did. It was on to the next trend, which music fans were told would be rockabilly and technopop. And despite the music's best efforts, violence began to break out at previously racially harmonious ska shows. The scene imploded almost as quickly as it exploded. And we'll pick things up there next. Ska burned extremely bright in the UK, starting in about 1978 and peaking in 1980 and 81. But then came the end. Here's Dave Wakeling from The Beat on what happened. Now, when you started this in, in, in 78 with everybody else that was in the band, you couldn't possibly imagine that you would keep going beyond 83. I mean, Scott, at that point, I guess yes. the British music press had decided that... That's it, New Romantics was in, yeah. we were out. Utilitarian furniture was out. In 1981, there were race riots all across the country. Skinheads started showing up at gigs, and the specials, the progenitors of the second wave, saw it firsthand. They documented this in a 1981 single called Ghost Town. The second wave of ska was pretty much done by 1983. But ska didn't go away. It simply slipped into the margins, where it was kept alive on both sides of the Atlantic. And a little more than a decade later, it sprang to life in the 1990s, thanks to bands like No Doubt, Rancid, Sublime, and so many others. And now we're talking about fourth-wave ska, showing that this music is pretty much indestructible. But whatever happens in the future, we will remember ska, second-wave ska, those post-punk years when it roared back to life. For the last half-dozen shows, we've been going through all the new genres that came out of the original punk era, Everything fractured and segmented and stratified into all these different sounds. We had New Wave, there was Technopop and all its subgroups. 
industrial, goth, alt dance, and second wave ska. Have we missed anything? Yeah, more punk. (laughs) It did not die. It just regrouped and evolved. And that's where we're going next time. Well, at least partly. If you want to get caught up, all these podcasts and hundreds more are available through every single podcast platform you can imagine. Binging is highly encouraged. Rate and review if you get a chance. As for other ways to connect, there's my website, a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day and comes with a free newsletter that's delivered right to your inbox. There's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and all emails can go to alan at alancross.ca, and I will get right back to you. The seventh and final installment of our look at the immediate post-punk years next time. Tactical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing? And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects, do you sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet? Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains. Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now. Is still relevant, you know. Like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Popstar. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? 
um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter. Uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music, uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what, what drew them in to get into this world of, uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And, and a lot of times to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what, what went into to make that product. And, and that, that piece of art affair is the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind of <laughs> headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up I came up in the 80s era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos. Right. The MTV much music era watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the Hungry Like a Wolf video. Like, what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the Stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.